Uh, well, gentlemen, uh, ladies and gentlemen, great to see you. Uh, there's an outline down the back if you want paper, which means it's real and it has a soul. Um, if you don't mind the PDF, it'll be on the app. I sent this through to Scott Sanders, who has then edited it, so uh, some of the gold has ended up on the floor, but anyway. <laughs> I tell you what, it's, uh, it's two o'clock, you've had a big couple of days, so have I. Um, how about I'll pray that God in his infinite mercy might make this time beneficial, yeah? Uh, well, three of you nodded, I'm going to do it anyway, okay, right, you say amen if you'd like to. Our Father, we thank you for the great privilege it is to preach your word. We ask, please, we might learn together and think together what it means to preach your word, not just to those who already believe, but to those who need to believe. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, I'm happy. Uh, we've got uh, an hour and 20. I'm happy to take any questions any time, pretty much. The only qualification is I'm half deaf. And um, uh, so if, you, if you're going to ask a question, nice and loud. That's the deal. I've got to use the microphone because uh, we're recording this. We'll see how much of it makes the cut. Up until last year, for six years, Kathy and I and two of our friends ran a kind of a, I don't know if you'd say home church, but a kind of a, almost a mission, mission station in our home in Bondi Junction, trying to reach the unchurched. Uh, it was pretty sophisticated. We'd invite a whole lot of people. My mate who I work was a brilliant one-to-one -one evangelist. We averaged between 20 and 30 people, maybe 10 people who weren't Christian every week. Half of them had never been in a church before. Uh, it, was, it was great fun. Uh, we, we didn't sing other than Christmas carols once a year. I wanted to call the church Nilsong, but they wouldn't be in it. So we ended up, we ended up calling it City East Fellowship. Now, tell you what was interesting as well as that. We, what it meant was we didn't go to a mainline church for nearly six years. Okay? I was still involved with City Bible Forum, etc. But we weren't in a kind of, if you like, a mainstream church for six years. So when we went along uh, to churches, we saw it with fresh eyes. And look, I'll tell you what we, what we saw so often, and this is, this is Bible-loving evangelical churches we went to, it really did feel like a club for Christians. Okay? And so you just, if, if you're the pastor of your church, by definition, you can't see your church with fresh eyes. You can't see what it's like to walk in as, a, as someone who's new. But I tell you what very often we saw is the assumption that everyone here is Christian in the building. That's, that's what the, the assumption was. Um, now, let me tell you how to achieve that feel of everyone here is Christian, and what it, what it says by default is really that if you're not a believer yet, this isn't really for you, okay? Yeah, it would be nice to you, but it's not really for you. You're not really kind of, you won't, you won't fit in here. Here's how to achieve it. One, don't do welcoming properly. Um, you know, you kind of, people will come in and they get a kind of a, a, a watered down smile and then you leave them sit somewhere and leave them on their own, that, that can happen. I mean, I had a job in Wollongong where I had to go to lots, visit lots of churches and uh, my wife, Kathy, who's she's a good-looking middle-aged Chinese lady who's well-dressed, she'd sit in the car for a while because I had to go in early, and then she'd walk in on her own, and the church would ignore her. And she'd even go and hang around at the bookshop, at the bookstall, and look lost or pick up leaflets, or whatever, and she'd get ignored. In, and this is on special days for the church, and well, until they 
found out she was the first lady and then they'd be all over it. But anyway, that's another story. Um, okay, then the next way to do it is to sing obscure songs that no one really understands. So uh, in the last year or two, I, I was in a church where we sang, Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by, the help I've come, by thy help I've come. I got a four-year degree from a theological college and I had to look it up. What, anyway, that's another story, my Ebenezer. Or we sing songs that don't rhyme. That's my little rant at the moment. You sing a song that doesn't rhyme 20 times and you can't remember it. But that's okay. Prayer without an introduction or explanation. Announcements that say, oh, if you want to do this or that, just see Jan or just see Barry. And I'm sitting there thinking, who's Jan or Barry? It's like, um, yep. And the big one I'm going to rant to you about today, if you think this is a rant, wait for later on, is sermons that assume everyone in the room is Christian. They talk about we Christians. And then the other way where I live, the way, the way to, to seal it all off is to have morning tea and only offer people instant coffee. Okay. Now, I'm a caffeine addict. I don't care. I'm not a coffee snob. But man, where I live, that's the one of saying, we don't love you. Okay. But you put all that together, the subliminal message so easily is to visitors and so on who aren't your people, that is, it's not really for you. It's not really for you. What I want to push you today is... I won't be as articulate, as clever and as polite as Ray Galea was yesterday, saying, Ray said, you've got to um, uh, look at things through two lenses, the Christian and the, and, and the visitor or the non-Christian. Right. Um, I want to push you to do that. And what, I'd, what, what I would talk about is accessibility. So I'm not saying church light, right, but it's, it's accessibility. You can run church so that the unbeliever understands what you're doing and is engaged with things. If you've got a church that by default says, um, if you're not a believer, this isn't really for you, even if you run a guest service now and then, okay, but then you go back to the other way the next week, it's reasonably pointless. All right. Um, Preaching and evangelism week by week and how how do we do it? I've been an itinerant, kind of turn up and give a talk um, at, at places 30 years. I reckon, uh, yeah, 1988, thir- just over 30 years, 32 maybe. Um, the role and effectiveness of an itinerant, I think, has changed in that time. 30, 40 years ago, there were many more people who were there as nominals and people would just kind of come to church and didn't really understand the gospel or hadn't, hadn't given their life to Jesus. And someone like John Chapman, who was a brilliant evangelist, would turn up and uh, explain the gospel, and those who weren't in the kingdom yet would believe, etc. And it was great. But the nominals aren't there anymore. Unless someone's working the pipeline or the funnel further back. Now, Sam and Graham and others have talked to us about how to do that. You know, Sam and his calendar and planning things and so on. But if you're not... If you're not working at making those wider uh, contacts so that you know, your church becomes the, the church that people don't go to, that's the first stage. Right? I don't go to church, but if I did, that's the one that I'd go to. Uh, and then they kind of circle and then you make contact with... I'll say more about this in a moment. And then get the, If you're not doing that, there, there won't be anyone there to hear the gospel when, when, the, uh, when the itinerant turns up. And so I spoke at a men's thing a, a while ago. There were there was a hundred blokes in the room. I think there were, f- and they tried. There were four visitors there, and three of them had been bought by the minister. 
Uh, why? Because they went out and asked, but they hadn't been doing the kind of the, the, the pipeline work further, uh, further back and making the, the contacts with people. Okay. Now, what I want to talk to you about today, though, is the idea of preaching to two audiences every week. How do you open the Bible and speak to uh, your congregation, the people who are there, uh, and assume that you've got believers and unbelievers there, and how do you speak to both of them all the time? That's, that's the one. Um, and I, I don't mean um, uh, we're all Christians for 95% of it and then tack John 3.16 on at the end every week. Um, uh, why? Uh, over time, um, preachers build their own audiences. Okay, um, so it's who you preach to. Uh, ultimately, will be who you'll get. Uh, if I could, <laughs> I know this isn't politically correct, but if I could quote a mate of mine, he's uh, a farmer at the time, um, <clears throat> Christian man lived out in the bush. He said, "You know." Most ministers I hear preach like they're preaching to women and kids. And then I look around, and they are. <laughs> Profound comment. All right. Okay, so how do, you, how do you preach to two audiences every week? Now, there's a, a hundred other things to say about preaching. Uh, so I just wanted the quite, quite narrow um, approach to that. How do, you, how do you speak? What are the, the things... How do you preach to two audiences every week? I've spent... 16 years with City Bible Forum, speaking at lunchtime uh, Bible talks, where the whole point is that Christian city workers can bring their non-Christian colleagues. So we're assuming on a good day we've got a third non-Christians in the room. And if they don't want to come the next week, they don't. So you've got to, you've got to get it right. Now, where do you see this kind of thing in the Scriptures? I think as you open the Bible, as you open the Scriptures, the Scriptures address the believer and the unbeliever and call them both to repentance. And they call people to walk towards Jesus. Now, I'll tell you where, one way you see it, if, you, if you've got a Bible there or, or, or you can just listen, a Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Lord, you know, our Lord's first great uh, teaching uh, section in Matthew's Gospel. We're told this, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. And his who, disciples came to him and he began to teach them. So up on the mountain, the disciples come, he teaches them, chapter 5. You've got chapter 5, chapter 6, you get to the end of chapter 7, and Matthew tells us this. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. So Jesus teaching his disciples, those who would follow him, with the crowds in the background. And very often in the Gospels, as Jesus is speaking to his disciples, you know, the religious leaders and others are, are listening in the background. So the, the, the preaching of Jesus is to the believer and the unbeliever, uh, the, the two audiences. Not all the time, but, but very often. And then there's also the, uh, the section in 1 Corinthians that Ray looked at in detail, uh, 1 Corinthians 14 from verse 23. Uh, let me read that to you. Uh, like I say, Ray, Ray did this better than I will uh, yesterday. Uh, the Apostle Paul says this to the Corinthians, uh, verse 14:23. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues and inquirers or unbelievers come in, 
Uh, the word for inquirers there, that the NIV translated inquirers, is the word idiotes, meaning uh, a person who's not acquired systematic information or expertise in some field of knowledge or activity. You could translate it as a layman, an ordinary person, an amateur. You can see where the word idiot comes from. It kind of means an outsider. But, okay, so you've got the idiotes or the unbeliever come in. Will they not say you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, and whatever you take prophesying to be, I'm assuming it's speaking the word of God in intelligible language as opposed to tongues that can't be understood, they are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all. The secrets of their hearts are laid bare, so they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. So the expectation is that as you are speaking the word of God to the believers, the unbeliever can hear, understand and engage with it. All right. Now, preachers, as I'll put it to you, preachers build their audience week by week over time. And who, within, over time, who you preach to is who you'll get there. Now, why? Well, week by week, your audience is listening, deciding, could they invite someone to come and hear you? That's what they're, that's what they're working out. And I'll tell you, folks, um, I've done, a, I've done on hundreds, hundreds of itinerant uh, uh, talks. It's much scarier inviting a friend than it is giving the talk. I give the talk, I get in the car, I drive home. Someone invites a friend, they live with it. Okay? And so you've got, to be, you've got to be very careful. But they are listening week by week to think, would it be okay for me to invite my husband, my brother, uh, my son, my daughter, uh, my neighbour, who, whoever it is? All right. Okay. So what I, what I want to talk to you about is... How do you, if we're doing more than just putting John 3.16 at the end every week, how do we, how do we do that? How do we speak to the Christian and the non-Christian so that your, your congregation members would actually have confidence to invite someone, whatever the week is? Can you, can you do that? Can we get there? Um, all right. First thing I want to talk about is the idea of dismantling a worldview. How, how do you do that? Uh, Andrew Heard is a master of it. Uh, I, I do my best. Uh, but I've heard both Tim Keller uh, and Peter Jensen say this. So it must be right. Um, actually, if you, want to, if you want to hear Tim Keller on this, uh, Tim Keller and Ed Clowney, uh, unfortunately Professor Clowney's died now, but uh, it's on iTunes, uh, Preaching Christ in a Postmodern World. It's on iTunes and it's free. Uh, it's about 20 hours of them lecturing and discussing preaching stuff. It's well worth a listen. Um, what do they say? If you want to dismantle a worldview, or you, you, you're talking to your audience, and there'll be people with very different worldviews. Like at the moment, I'm trying to learn how to preach in Surrey Hills. So, man, there's different worldviews out of what I grew up with. Like I say, I grew up, you know, rugby league and instant coffee. It's, it's quite different. If you just say this other world view is either stupid or, or sinful or wicked or whatever, I think it's just going to bounce off people. Okay? 
you know, euthanasia. It's just godless sin and we're made in the image of God and so, you know, uh, that's, those people are on their way to hell. Euthanasia. You're not going to get any traction with people that way. Even, I think, the same, with same-sex marriage, if I can say that. Okay? Even though I'm, I'm absolutely, you know, marriage, man and woman only. What I think you've got to do is show that you understand and to some extent empathise with the, the motives and the heart of those who want that particular worldview. Because if you look, you can actually find something that's positive in that. So um, euthanasia, okay? I understand that those who are in favour of euthanasia want to, what? Reduce suffering, let people keep their dignity, um, care for families as, as someone is actually dying, etc. And so what they want to do is relieve suffering in the world. I understand that. Yeah. Now, once you understand that you're standing beside someone, it's then that you can... Yeah. But to that, let me say, right, for example, and then you, start, you list the, the problems with it, uh, the fact that you get bracket creep and you start off only the terminally ill, but then, like, um, you know, Holland, the, the Netherlands now, pretty much anyone who walks past slowly and feels depressed, they'll euthanise. Now, that's pretty much okay. Um, that that, that the demands for euthanasia are almost always in anticipation of pain rather than in, in actual pain. When people get to the end of life, what they want is more time, not less time. It puts emotional pressure on people. There's any number of... But you see, you, you've said, I understand why people want that. Then if you begin to take that, you know, rattle the bars or, or pull that apart they're much more likely to listen to you. Okay? I've also learned you've got to, if you're going to speak about other worldviews or other positions, you've got to do it with respect. If you ridicule or take cheap shots at, at other people's views, those who hold those views will not listen to you on anything, but even people who don't react to that, especially, like especially in Surrey Hills, if you're disrespectful about anything, they won't, I'm learning, they won't listen to you. Okay, so that's, that's one. Uh, how are we going for time? Any, any thoughts so far? Okay, I'll keep going. Now, here's some really simple ideas about how do you engage the Christian and the non-Christian as you're, as you're opening the Bible. There's some... Uh, it's all a bit of a jumble, I'm sorry. I should be better organised, but here, here we go. Be careful in the way that you address the group. Don't say to the whole group, we Christians. Because on a Sunday, you don't know whether they're all Christians. And even if you look around and you know everyone in the room and they're all seven-point Calvinists, right? Okay. Um, I know there's only five. It's all right. Um, <laughs> you look around and, and you know them all. If you say that, we Christians, what have you just said? You've told everyone in the room that you're going to do that again next week. Okay? Do you see what I mean? So you, you're, you've got to preach assuming that there'll be people in the room who aren't believers and then those who are believers might be willing and brave enough to bring along unbelievers or tell people about it or, or whatever. So don't say we Christians. The way to do it, and I've had to learn to do it at City Bible Forum, that is 
You say, now, you can say, now most of us would be followers of Jesus. Or for those of us who are followers of Jesus. Or if you want to, you know, for those of us who are Christians. But in a talk that, now here I think I can say we Christians, you all right? But in a talk, any kind of public meeting, I never say Christians. I'll tell you why. 52% of Australians still think they're Christian. Right? To quote the words of the castle, they're dreaming. But they're, um, there's what? There's way less than 10% are, are genuine, card-carrying, born-again believers in Jesus. But there's 52% who still think they're Christian. Well, that's confusing. And if you're talking to people 10 years older than me... You have to talk loud. Okay, all right. If you're talking to people 10 years older than me, they, they, even more of them will think they're Christian. And if you try and tell them they're not Christian, what they'll hear is you're telling them they're immoral. So what do I say? I talk about those who follow Jesus. Now, you can use your own phrase, your own, was it nomenclature? I can never say that word. You can use your own labels. But I, when I talk about those of us who follow Jesus or those of us who trust Jesus or those of us who have Jesus as our Lord, and all of a sudden people think, oh, that's, well, I wonder what... Okay, that's just a different angle. You don't get confused in that 52% that way. Okay? That's one. Uh, Nick, yep, go. Sorry. Yeah, Dave? Yep. Friends, if it's a group of men, I'll usually refer to them as gentlemen. Okay, which is just kind of they usually get a little, you know, a smirk and jump. Uh, uh, folks, friends, I don't know. You've got to kind of work it. I, I remember there was a guy at um, who, who taught scripture at Mount Druitt before me, and. Um, and the kids, after I got there, and the kids said, yeah, such and such, he was here. He used to say, now, friends, we're going to do that. And we'd say, mate, we're not your friends. Uh, uh, yeah, is I don't know. Got a a I think so. I think it's a context thing. I, you're, in, you're in New Zealand. I, don't, I wouldn't presume. Friends. Yeah, I probably wouldn't say it in a, in a public meeting. If it's a closed meeting of your church, it might be all right. I probably wouldn't say it. Um, ladies and gentlemen, if they're a bit younger, you can call them, I don't know, whatever, folks. Don't know. Yeah, it's a, it's a context thing. It's just using the label Christian is exclusive and confusing, I, th I think, in our current day. That, that was the, the point. What you call them, yeah, you've got to work that out from, yep, uh, from context. Next one. Uh, assume your audience is intelligent but uninformed. Uh, the level of biblical ignorance is in plague proportion. People really do not have a clue. Uh, I remember I had, I had lunch with a guy, uh, North Sydney, uh, no, uh, Neutral Bay, he ran his own computer company. He had 20 or 30 employees, razor-sharp mind. We're having lunch, not a Christian. And he says, I said something about, yeah, well, the New Testament says X, Y, Z. He said, yeah, yeah, the New Testament. What was wrong with the old one? Why did they have to rewrite it? Now, 
he, he, like, he's not stupid, but he's just uninformed. Or as one of my mates says, uh, Wayne Pickford says, people down here in um, uh, south of Wollongong think Moses plays for the LA Lakers. That's the, uh, so. Now, what do you got to do? Well, you want to give context and background. Context and background um, almost on the run. Uh, I'll, come, I'll come back to that in a moment, but I'll, I'll, uh, I'll come back. Okay. If my notes were better organised, I wouldn't have to come back to it, but I realise I'll need to. All right, let me talk to you about how we deliver it. This is the big one, how we deliver it. I had the privilege 30-something years ago of working for John Chapman. Uh, he was a, an itinerant evangelist, uh, a brilliant, a brilliant simple, clear preacher. Uh, and by simple, I mean just made things so clear. I remember what he would do, you'd, you'd be like his caddy for the year, you go out and speak somewhere, record it, give him the recording, he'd pull it apart, he'd uh, tell you how to put it back together, you go out and do it again. And I remember I've done, I've done a talk and, and um, you know, sometimes a bit brutal getting critiqued. So he's listened to it, um, it was a gospel thing, you know, itinerant, and he, he said to me, brother, um, uh, do, do you actually believe this? Right? He'd shake his head, his bottom lip would stick out. Brother, do you actually believe this? I said, I, I, yeah, yeah, John, I do. He said, well, it doesn't sound like it. And I said, well, well mate, I didn't, you know, I didn't want to be emotionally manipulative. You know, like, as I, he said, well, it's been a long time before, a long way before that happened. <laughs> right? I want to I hear like you mean it. Oh, okay, righto, chapo. Okay, and that, you know, that, that's good. Now, you think, okay, it is possible, it is possible to talk about matters of life and death, okay, and no one listens. Matters of life and death, and no one listens and no one takes you seriously. I'll give you the example. Aeroplane safety talks. Let me tell you a story. About three weeks ago, I went to, I flew up to the north coast, um, to Coffs Harbour, drove to Grafton, did a wedding for my sister's daughter, a lovely girl, did the wedding. Uh, drive back to Coffs Harbour, we get on the plane, it's a Dash 8, Qantas Dash 8, twin prop, that's it, two engines, four seats wide, about 100 people. I'm sitting there, I was reading something, oh yeah, I remember, yeah, reading a book. And um, the flight attendant, young girl, about 25, I don't know if she gave the safety talk or not. I wasn't listening. I was reading the book, and everyone else was. Blah, 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 blah. Okay. And she talked about the safety things, whatever. Okay. Life and death, no one's listening. Can remind you of some sermons, maybe. Okay. About 40 minutes later, we're three miles in the air, and we're over Bulladila, and you look out the window, there's mountains everywhere, not a flat spot anywhere. And all of a sudden... Every eye and every ear was focused on her as she spoke about safety things in the plane. Right? Same talk, same woman, total focus from the audience. I closed the book, etc. Now, anyone want to guess what had just happened? The, the, engine, the engine beside me stopped. <laughs> so we felt the plane just shot slide a little bit. And I've looked out the right, and the, the prop has stopped. And I'm thinking, 
I'm sure that thing should be spinning around, right? <laughs> and she's running up and down the aisle, and, and um, oh, what? she wasn't sweating. She was really good. She said, oh, no, look, we, we train for this all the time. She's a really experienced pilot, and kind of like, and everybody is focused on her. And then the pilot comes on and says, well, we're trying to work out whether we go back to Coffs Harbour or we continue on to Sydney. Um, and then he comes back on and says, we're going to continue to Sydney. It'll take about 40 minutes. Do not worry. This plane is perfectly capable of flying on one engine. And I'm thinking, well, OK, we'll see. <laughs> what's changed? I'll tell you what's changed. The safety procedures and what the flight, uh, flight attendant is saying is all of a sudden real because the propeller had stopped. Your job as a preacher is to show the people listening that the propeller has stopped and heaven and hell are real. And when the Bible talks about life and death and eternity and, and forgiveness, it's real. That's, that's the point. It's, whether or not they'll listen depends on is the preacher preaching for real or is he going through the motions? Now, Helmut Thielicke wrote a book uh, called The Problem with the Church. Uh, Helmut Thielicke is a German theologian, kind of middle of the 20th century. Um, I would love to have heard him preach in person. Probably wouldn't work too well because I can't speak German, but uh, let, me, let me read you what he says. He says, This is the point, it seems to me, where the secret distrust of Christian preaching is smouldering. Behind all the obvious superficial criticisms such as the sermon is boring, remote from life, irrelevant, there is, I am convinced, this ultimate reservation, namely that the man who bores others must be boring himself. And the man who bores himself is not really living in what he so boringly hands out. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In this case, the treasure of the heart seems not to be identical uh, with what he, is, what he is commending to others. The attractions by which his heart is moved seem to come from some other source. And so we miss the very thing that my teacher of theology was talking about, the peculiar personal tone. For that peculiar tone will be immediately audible if the speaker himself is in what he says, if he gives of himself and puts his whole heart into it. Now, I don't mean... Then you have to yell all the time, all over him. I don't. You just need to be in your material. If you pump it up to 110% all the time, 110% becomes a new 50%. You're not emphasising anything. You just need to be in your material. Okay? And as you, as you are, as it's real to you, and as you're engaging with them, they'll realise that you're fed income and that, it, that it's real. Okay? Um, the, other, the other mistake that, some, that I've heard especially young preachers make is scolding the audience. I was listening to a young guy and, and coaching him in preaching and I said to him, mate, I've listened to preach. it was a church plant and the church plant wasn't going all that well. And I remember saying to him, mate, it sounds like you're angry with your audience. And he says, oh, well, I guess I am. There's only half of them turn up week by week. And it's kind of like, I said, I said yeah, but they're the ones that turned up. Don't be cranky with them. <laughs> he, was, he was hammering them week by week. He said, mate, can you, you know, a little bit of honey, not vinegar. Anyway, so, so um, interesting. If you look at the word for paracaleo, I put it um, in the appendix. I don't know if it made the cut. Did Scott include it? In the appendix in your notes, paracaleo, um, there's a whole lot of different ways that you can translate that word. 
So it can, and I've just listed the ways that it comes out in the New Testament, to plead, exhort, encourage, appeal, uh, etc. Okay? So don't, you're not scolding them. It's just got to be real and, in, and, and, uh, and so on. Now, uh, it's not how loud you talk, okay? But it's, and depending on your personality, etc. but you need to be in your material and it needs to be real. I'm not saying write in your notes, oh, cry here or whatever. <laughs> you, you, don't cry when you preach. But, but you don't, I'm not saying, and you won't, you won't need to. You won't need to. Um, if, you're in, if you're in your material. If you can speak about sin without a heartache, or if you can speak about the resurrection without getting excited, there's something wrong with you, okay? you like, ah, anyway. All right, now here's it. I'm about to tell you something that's gold. You ready? This is, this is worth the price of admission. You think, oh, I wasted an hour and a half listening to that guy. No, no, this is worth the price. You ready? All that time in your study and, and working and preparing everything, you are not preparing a talk. You're not writing a talk. Got, ready? What are you doing? You are preparing to talk to people. And there's all the difference in the world. You write a theological essay and read it to them, okay? I'll be sitting there thinking, please shoot me. All right. Okay? Now, I read Jordan Peterson's book, 12 Rules for Life. Um, if you haven't heard of Jordan Peterson, there's a thing called the internet. It's on computers, okay? Um, anyway, just, he's just gone. He's not a Christian. I'm a fan, but... Listen, but I want, to, I want to read to you. He's a brilliant communicator. He's a brilliant communicator. I want to read to you what he says, because I've been saying this for a long time, but now that JBP says it, it must be right. Okay. That's Jordan B. Peterson, if you haven't... Okay. Let me read this to you. He says this. A good lecturer is thus talking with and not at or even to his or her listeners. To manage this, the lecturer needs to be closely attending to the audience's every move, gesture and sound. Perversely, um, watching the audience as such cannot do this. A good lecturer speaks directly to and watches the response of a single individual. Uh, a single and, sorry, of, of single and identifiable people instead of doing something cliched such as presenting a talk to an audience. Everything about that phrase is wrong. He's saying presenting it. Now, I've got to read this, which is frustrating, okay? But um, he's saying presenting a talk is the wrong way to think. Everything about that phrase is wrong. You don't present a talk. There is no such thing as a talk unless it is canned, and it shouldn't be. There is also no audience. There are individuals, okay, who need to be included in the conversation, um, a well-practiced and competent public speaker addresses a single, identifiable person and watches that individual okay, shake his or her head, frown or look confused and respond appropriately and directly to those gestures and expressions. Then after a few phrases, uh, round out some idea, he switches to another audience member and does the same thing. Now, that's hard to do. Because sometimes I'll lock onto someone's eyes and I'll think, oh, what are they thinking? And the kind of thing, oh, yeah, where was I? And uh, etc. But what's he saying? You're not delivering a talk. You're talking to people. If you're not up to yet, I'm, I've only given about 4,000 talks, so I'm still 
working on it. I'm trying to get this idea of speaking to individuals without getting distracted. If you're not quite there yet, just go into soft focus or take your glasses off. That's the way I don't know. Okay. Are you out there still? Right. Um, uh, yeah, and then, but you, your eye contact's up and you're talking to people rather than delivering a talk. Okay, that, so what are you doing in your study? You're preparing to talk to people. And you, you prepare to carefully, and you know what you're going to say, and you're going to teach the scriptures, but you're going to talk to them. Now, here's my plea. Please, please, please don't use a full script. Please don't. I'll tell you why. Because a full script, 99 times out of 100, will bore people witless. Because the written word and the spoken word are different and you read the written word to people huh? why sentence structures are different the words you use are different all of those things the spoken word is is raggedy sometimes you don't know how to finish a, you, you have to go back and start again uh, you, you, you kind of get yourself into a cul-de-sac and then you don't know where to um, and you but those raggedy bits the, the bits you get fired, that's the Velcro that helps people hold in terms of attention. Do you see? And you, you imagine, if I just read you an essay, you're, you know, like, oh, hey, a bird, okay? You're just going to drift off. But it's when you speak to people that you'll hold their attention. And you also know if the screensaver's gone on in all their heads. Okay, so I'm talking to an audience and half, half of them are going, you know, like, the screensaver's on. I'll stop and say, what's, what's wrong? Are you guys, you know... What's the matter? You didn't get that, did you? Yeah. That, I think it's gone on now. Some of, you, some of you guys up the back there are looking a bit kind of... Is that you, Liam? You there? Yeah, OK, good, mate. Just, just someone check his pulse, will you? That's, yeah. Do you see what I mean? Now, what stopped... Look, when you're starting out, the, the, uh, the full script is a, is a security blanket. What if I get up there and I can't work out what to say or what a kind of, like... Yeah, all right, take the chance. Take the chance. I've known a guy who's been preaching for years, and I've said to him, mate, please, don't use a full script. He says, oh, I'm, I'm afraid that I'll get up there and not know what to say. Said, take the chance. Your congregation would love it if you took the chance. So what do you do? Well, you start off, I always just drop the text, pretty much drop the text onto the page that I'm going to work with, work out your structure, etc. but work out your major points, and then put in your next, your next few and your next few and your next few. You start to learn your stories off by heart. How many times do you reckon I've told that story about coming back from Coffs Harbour and the, and the propeller stopping and the kind of... I practised it ten, a dozen times with poor old Cathy in the room. So she's going, oh, not that story again. But I've got it down. I don't need notes for that anymore. Okay. Learn, you practise how to tell stories. You, and then you slowly sort of build the skeleton of your talk. But don't, don't use paragraphs of more than two lines or in fact don't have paragraphs what happens is for for young preachers especially you're working on a full text you've got paragraphs like that sort of thing and you're halfway through a paragraph and you're thinking I haven't looked at them for about five minutes I wonder if they're still there but I can't look up because if I do I'll lose my place and I've got no, no, no. point form and also you'll know what you want to say so please please don't use a, a full script Yes, sir. Yeah, Alex, I just clarify, so you never write the full script at all? Uh, I, I don't now. 
okay? But I probably had used more notes before, but I tell you, I could give the same talk 95, 98% the same, okay? Uh, there'd just be the, the sentence structure down there. Okay, when you're starting out, maybe you use some more notes, but also it's, it takes you a powerful long time to write two, 3,000 word essay, all full, perfect, that, you know? You haven't got the time to do that. That's okay. So you work out, you, you work. The other thing to do is, of course, do your prep early in the week and uh, you, you do your, your, this is probably, uh, how do I put it, not exactly on, on topic, but you do your, your hard scholarly work, you do your exegesis, your translation, you read your commentaries early in the week and let it sit for a day or two while you mull over how you're going to um, illustrate that, what the applications are, how you live with that, how you, when you read the paper, you think, ah, that's the, that's the illustration I need. And once you know that you're looking for stuff, it's everywhere, like trying to illustrate and, and apply. And then later in the week, you can kind of um, get to your speaking notes. But you've also spent a couple of days forming up your sentences and what you're going to say in your head. So Kathy will look at me and say, what's wrong with you? And, oh, I'm just writing a talk in my head. That's, I'm just thinking about it. Right? That's, so you want to live with it for a few days. You start... I did hear about one minister who used to, um, week by week, he would start his sermon Saturday after dinner and work right through the night and then go and preach it on Sunday. Hard man. But um, he hasn't had time for it to incubate. He hasn't had time to think about it, to live with it. That's, that'll make it, I think that'll also improve your ability to not need full notes as, you, as you've thought about it. Okay. Dave? Um, okay, yeah, if you're on a full manuscript at the moment, uh, wean yourself off slowly. So what does that weaning look like over the next okay. six months? Start, start putting yourself, you work out the, the science of preaching is, is your, book, your book work, your translation, your commentaries. You, I print the passage out, if it's New Testament, uh, English one side, oh, sorry, Greek one side, English the other, then accordance and I go through, oh, I love accordance, and then we translate the Greek and, and look at it. Then I read the commentaries, work out the, um, work out the structure, okay? work out your major points and then, and then put them in, drop the text in, and then you just start kind of adding. Okay, I'm going to tell that, I'm going to make that application there, that comment there, I'll put that story in, and, and in, in point form, and then I'll flesh it out as I need it. At the moment, what I do, because I'm getting older, I'm working on 16-point type. Because it means I can stand right over here and I can still read it if I, if I want to. I'm also working from one of these um, uh, plastic leaf booklets. And it doesn't, I'm not juggling notes. Uh, or you swap pages and you put one in the wrong order, you end up with your pants around your ankles. So once you've got this in a... Um, and that's not, not recommended. Um, once you... <laughs> Once you put this in here, you, you're just turning pages and it, it really works. That's the best thing I've, I've come up with. So you just kind of wean yourself off a of full text. Um, i tell you what will happen. Your accuracy will drop by 10%. But your communication will go up by 50 60%. I guarantee. 
Okay, yesterday, my humble effort, seven minutes, um, the stats on Australian churches. Felt like beating up my grandmother. It was all, you know. Um, did you guys see me do that? Okay, right. I made a mistake in it. I should have read the, the Reach Australia um, vision statement. Okay, messed it up. Andrew Heard nailed it that night, etc., etc. But if you think, the level of communication involved, because I basically memorised it and worked off the slides, okay, I got, I got what? I got 90% of the content right. If I'd stood here and read it, uh, we are all so small and 50% um, of us could blah, 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 and one third of our churches couldn't host a rugby league game, blah, blah, blah. All right. Communication goes up, way up. And your accuracy, you you know, it, it's the fringes that might get a bit raggedy. You, you're not going to commit theological heresy or anything like that. That's my point. Liam? I've got to watch. <laughs> oh, sorry, not being... Um, no. Um, well, what I do, I do seriously work on a, um, on a stopwatch, okay, as I get up. I've also got... There's, there's the watch, okay. Um, but I also know now uh, I've got a feel. Look, okay. Um, I think I've given 4,000 talks, okay. That doesn't mean I'm a hero. It's three a week for 30 years or whatever it is, Okay. And I've got a feel for, I can write a 20 minute talk, I almost don't need to check it anymore, I just know what 20 minutes is. Uh, 2,800 characters is about 35 minutes, I just kind of know. Also, after a while, once you've been going, you can look and think, whoa, I've got to hit the accelerator and, and, and speed up. Now, that's something you can't do um, if you're working off a full script. Right? So you, you'll get the feel for it, and I watch... Every talk should feel like 20 minutes. Okay, there's some guys who speak and they speak for 10 minutes and it feels like 20. There's others who can speak for 35, 40 minutes and it feels like 20. You just, okay, that's, but that's just me. But uh, you should have your stopwatch there and you'll get a feel for how long it is and you can also adjust your speed as you go. Um, you know, that story about Coffs Harbour, uh, okay, right. Uh, People are more likely to listen if they think it's real. The other day I was in a plane and the uh, propeller stopped and everyone listened. There you go, bang, let's keep going. You can say it quick if you want it. Okay, any other, any other thoughts, questions? Yes, sir? When you're doing your PowerPoint format, do you then go and just do a, just kind of give that talk for 40 minutes without, without anyone? I'm not sure, with the bullet point, yeah, keep going. Oh, do I practice? Yeah. Uh, I used to, and some guys do. Okay, so um, what I'm doing, um, do I actually practice it out loud? Uh, I would recommend probably for the first several hundred times, yes, you should. Okay, I, I don't because I'm rerunning, I'm rewriting in my head again and again and again. Okay, so I work out the big. The, the structure, and I'm thinking it through, yeah, 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 and then I'm, then I'm adding more, and then I'm adding... So I've gone through it 20 times in my head, again and again. I don't practice it out loud. Um, I think there's, there's other guys who do, and I think when you're starting out, it's a good idea. Uh, you <laughs> some guys preach it to their wives, and they get, they get some feedback. The only time I've ever tried that with Kathy, she fell asleep. So, uh, I mean, literally... Uh, all right, thanks for the feedback, Amy. So, um, yeah, 
So that's, it's, it's, I think it's, a, it's up to you. But if, you, if you're starting out, it's probably a good idea. It'll help you articulate what you're going to say and it'll also help you get the feel around timing as well. Mostly it's practice. And I think, gentlemen, I'd say, or ladies and gentlemen, I think I'd say, if you want to learn to preach, you can come to endless conferences about it and listen to my old guys rant, but really it's preaching regularly and getting critiqued or coached is how you'll learn to do it. Um, Grant Borg, I don't know if you guys, if any of you guys were at Multiply on Tuesday, Grant, who's out at MBM Southwest, I've been coaching Grant for two couple of years now. Um, he's he's improved dramatically. Uh, he's naturally good, but uh, but we've finally got him to stop using a full script, and and the the accuracy might have dropped one or two percent, but boy, the communication's way up. Okay, he's really he's gone very well. If you want to hear him preach, um, uh, MBM Southwest Grant Borg, I think he's in the room. Uh, brilliant, and I'll tell you what, when he preaches, hell is hot. And, and Jesus is God, I tell you, he's, he's terrific. Yes, sir? Have you got a good feedback uh, on you? Um, I might have somewhere. Generally what I do when I'm, when I'm trying to critique a, a talk, I just run a two-inch margin down the, um, uh, the right-hand side of the page and I'll take as much content as I can and then anything about communication I write in that right-hand column. And that, that's pretty much how I'll critique it and then try and pick up just one or two things that, that we're looking for. You don't, you don't say, well, that whole thing was hopeless. You say, OK, well, that was good, except, you know, can you work on certain things? Go. Yes, yes. If, you, if you're working for a senior minister, ideally uh, he would critique you. It's interesting not... Uh, the best preachers aren't necessarily the best preaching coaches. Um, and not everyone knows what to look for. Um, uh, people will listen and say, thanks for that talk, that was great, but they can't tell you what was good or, or what was bad necessarily. But if you can find someone who can critique you uh, regularly, that, that's how you learn. Um, and, and often I've found with young guys, they, they improve dramatically with with a little bit of regular feedback. Okay. Uh, let me just give you uh, a couple more here. Uh, markers that allow... Here we go back. If I have my notes better organised. The markers that assume that someone's unfamiliar with the Bible... What do you... Okay, let's go back to, to preaching to two audiences. Uh, if you go... So, for example, if you go for a cross-reference or you mention another part of the Bible... Etc. It's it's very easy to give some context that not only tells people where it is in the Bible and what it is, but says it's okay to not be familiar with the Bible. Okay, so uh, I'm preaching and I want to go to the Psalms and and give a cross reference. And one of you guys can be right. We're going to go to the Psalms. And I've I've never first time in a church. I think Moses plays for the LA Lakers. What's a Psalm? Someone going to give us a sentence? Uh, we're going to have a look at Psalm 46. The Psalms are what? They're halfway through the Bible and a book of songs. Okay, halfway through the Bible and a book of songs. That'll do. Yeah, that's it. No, actually, well done. That's where to find it and what they are. 
Yeah, Psalms are kind of in the middle of the Bible. It's like 150 kind of songs or, or poems. There you go. Oh, right, in the Old Testament. And are written, lots of them were written by King David about 1000 BC. Um, okay, Philippians. We're going to go to, we're going to, we're going to go cross, I'm assuming in a, in a, if your whole Bible talk is on Philippians, you'll pick that up. But we're going to go, um, uh, we're speaking on prayer, we're going to go Philippians 4, 6, don't have anxiety about anything, etc. One sentence on what, what is Philippians? Anyone? Yes, sir. Richard. A loop, okay. Letter to the first century in the Mediterranean. Uh, where did they live? Where did the Philippians live? That's it. Yeah. Um, it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians who lived in Philippi. Yeah, in the middle of the first century. Yes, sir? How far would you go with that? Would you explain to Paulers and how Well, it depends on... If, you, if I'm speaking on Philippians, I'll do all of that, okay? I'll, assu I'll assume all of that. If I'm speaking on, say, prayer, and this is just one... By the way... A cross-reference always costs you attention, etc., and time. You don't have to try not to have too many in your in your talks. But if you're going to go there, uh, if it's just a cross-reference, I might just give a sentence. And so it's kind of a judgment call, but a, a sentence that says it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Philippi in northern or Macedonia. Uh, yeah, in the middle of the first century, and that just says. Oh, okay, I get it. Because Psalms are different to Philippians are different to and Luke. Anyone? Okay, we're going to we're going to uh, Luke uh, Luke twenty four. Mikey Lynch did the other day. Luke twenty four. Luke was a Luke was a doctor, and uh, he was like a part time historian, and he wrote the story of Jesus. And it's all, or Luke wrote a bio, I know biography and the gospel aren't exactly the same thing, but Luke was a doctor and he was the one who wrote one of the biographies of Jesus. Okay, that, it just tells it's okay. The other one that I reckon is worth doing and, and keeping in mind, where you get the chance to bang the drum for history in passing, do it. Because what we want to do is we want to show people we're not looking at Harry Potter or Mordor or Star Wars or, or Lord of the Rings. This stuff really happened. And so um, if, you're, if you're familiar with Josephus, for example, um, okay, so you're preaching on uh, Mark chapter 6, John the Baptist being arrested by King Herod. Uh, that's beautiful. So you go to Josephus, it's worth doing reading Josephus' account of how Herod arrested John the Baptist and had him executed. Or... Um, uh, uh, if you're um, if you're speaking on Pontius Pilate, just on the way past, just have a, a sentence or two from Josephus, the Jewish historian who mentions Pontius Pilate. Uh, if you're if you're speaking on the Gospels and and something comes up about Capernaum, Google Capernaum. They've got an aerial shot of Capernaum uh, at the village. They've even got the observation thing over the house. They think where the Lord Jesus. Um, uh, where the guy was lowered down through the roof and, and the Lord Jesus healed him. But you can just say, oh, look, by the way, this happened in Capernaum. Here's an aerial shot of what it looks like today. It's on the edge of Lake Galilee, um, etc. Et There's the souvenir shop, uh, you know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Uh, so all, my, just my point is that you're showing people that this is real uh, by history, by geography. Uh, you can, you know, you're speaking on Daniel, I'm in the middle of speaking on Daniel at Clavelli Church. You need a map, okay? 
the Jerusalem fell, Nebuchadnezzar took them to Babylon. You had a map that just shows that. Uh, let me show you the ruins of Babylon. Uh, by the way, here's what Babylon would have looked like. Here's the artist's impression of, of Babylon. There's the Ishtar gates uh, that the, the, um, the Germans stole from Iraq and uh, took to the... Sorry, it's not stealing if you're wearing a pith helmet, is it? It's uh, archaeology. And they put it in the museum uh, in Berlin. Now, that took... That takes 15 seconds, bang, 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 bang. But all of a sudden, oh, oh, this is real, okay? Just did see the, what I'm saying? Uh, having said that, beware of death by PowerPoint, <laughs> okay? Uh, do you really need this slide? I've got to ask myself that, uh, that question. All right, now, one of the tricky things is most of the talk can apply to the believer and the unbeliever. I think that's, I think that's true. And what you're trying to do is show them what is it, um, uh, what's the text saying, yes, and then what would it look like to trust Jesus in how we live? And I know, I know people who are smarter than me have said, oh, we don't need to do application in the Bible, you know, you just got to preach the word and people will work it out. Most people don't think well from principle to action. Most, most people don't. They don't think well from the abstract principle to the concrete action. And one of the things about application, I think, is we need to show people what does that look like. And you don't have to show them in micro detail. That's our brother Tony was saying that earlier on. That you, you don't need to show them, but you do need to show them some of what it... How, does, how would this look on Monday morning? How does this look at work? How does this look in my family? Etc. Um, make it... There's the principle, yes. What does it look like in the concrete? So I've, I've got nine different questions there that you might ask in thinking about um, application. Did they make the cut in the handout? No? Oh, Scott Sanders. Scott Sanders. Yeah, are they there? They are. You misled me. You shook your head. All right, okay, so there they are, okay. Is it true? Uh, what does God say about uh, how we should live? You can read them for yourself, I won't read them. One of the things we want to show, I think, as we preach is this, that, that God is good and God is wise and the Christian life's the best way to live. We want to actually show that the Christian life is, is attractive and that God actually wants to give us life rather than take life away. It's one of the big things that, um, that we want. Obviously, at saying preach to two audiences, what you're trying to do is show what does it look like to follow Jesus, and for the non-Christians, what would it? Yeah, why is it the best way to live? What is what is good about this? Now, obviously, at, at some stage, you you want to offer people the opportunity to cross the line, to uh, pray the you know pray the prayer, to uh, give their life for the Lord Jesus. Absolutely, absolutely. I tell you what, the one of the one of the problems can be. For people over about the age of, well, over the age of 30, something like that, it takes multiple... The Lord can do as he chooses. He convert people straight away. But what I've, what I've seen is it takes many contacts with the Bible, many engagements with the Bible for adults, to, for God to rearrange the furniture in their head so that they're ready to be Christian. Uh, some of the guys that, through our, our little home church mission thing... Six to 18 months, 
you know, like, like 20 to 30 engagements with the Bible before they're, oh, yeah, I, I, I get. So that's why it's important to be able to teach the Bible to two audiences, week by week by week. Okay. Uh, then I've got, okay, I've just jumped ahead, the idea of uh, showing that God is good and God is wise. You want to remember we used to be the do-gooders, now we're the haters. If you doubt that, just have a look at Prue Goward's article in the Herald today where basically she says, you know, the, the, the Christians are the bad guys. Um, all right. Um, one last thing, and this is what Sam, uh, Sam Hilton was talking about uh, before lunch, is thinking through in, in our churches, is thinking through the suite of meetings that we run and how you get people, you don't make the bar too high on any one step to actually get people to the point of where they would engage with the Bible. Um, I don't know if this diagram made the, made the cut, but the idea of you, you can run stuff that's kind of general contact with, uh, that's not scary to invite someone to. Christmas carols is a classic. Uh, real dialogue, one of my mates at City Bible Forum runs this thing where he runs, uh, he's arranged uh, new release movies that they'll show, and then he has like a panel to discuss the world view behind them. Uh, Mark Hadley's one of the guy, uh, one of our um, Geneva guys has been on that. Sometimes you get a Christian and a non-Christian to discuss it. Uh, so you know, what's the world view behind this? What would the, how would a Christian critique of that look like, etc. Dead easy to invite someone to that, and it can work for a surprising range of movies. They did it for um, Planet of the Apes, and it worked. I don't know how. Okay, um, or a barbecue, and then the next one might be. You, the next step along the line might be you're asking people to engage with some practical wisdom from the Bible. So, you know, a parenting course or a marriage course. Or my mate John Best, who's a doctor, does a brilliant one on men and health, being physically and spiritually healthy. Okay, so that sort of thing. And then the next step along is uh, real engagement with the Bible, whether that be church or reading the Bible one-to-one or, uh, or that sort of thing. But it's part of the process of working it out. I can tell... I could say I can tell when, when churches haven't worked it out, they, they want me to come and speak at a men's event or something, and I think, sure, and I turn up and I say, okay, where do you want me to kind of leave them? Where do you want me to get them to as a result of hearing this talk? We want them to do, and they say, oh, don't know. Um, oh, talk to the friend that bought them. Now, we all know that's, content, that's, that's code for we haven't thought about it, we don't know what to do. Uh, so it's it's... It's part of the kind of ongoing. You want to be thinking, well, as Sam said, you know, the funnel or, or at least some kind of pipeline. Questions? Let me show you how this works. Here we've got application um, of Bible, the Bible to two audiences. See, I've got, I've got five, um, five different passages there. Ruth, Psalm 19, Philippians, Matthew, and David and Goliath. Did that, did that make the cut? Yeah? Okay. I uh, haven't got time to... Uh, what I would normally do is, is get you guys to say, read Ruth chapter 1 and work out how would you preach that to two audiences? You know, Ruth, this little obscure book in the Old Testament, how, I tell you what, it's a gem for non-Christians and Christians. Uh, I'll show you... Can I walk you through them quickly and show you... Yeah, all right? Okay. So if you turn the appendix uh, 3, two audiences... All right, here's how, here's how I would, and I have, um, preach Ruth chapter 1. You've you got the story of Ruth in your head. Um, 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 
Naomi and Elimelech uh, and their two sons uh, leave. They go to Moab. The, the men all die. Uh, she comes with Ruth. Ruth says she'll come back. She arrives back and says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara because uh, I'm bitter. All right. You start off, where does bitterness come from? Usually it's that uh, our expectations are not met or our dreams are dying. It's not hard to find examples about that, etc. Life doesn't work out the way that we think it, it will or it should. Okay. Now, it's not hard to tap into that with people who aren't Christian. You say, even being a follower of Jesus can even make it harder because isn't God supposed to fix all of that? Don't people tell us we'll live the victory life and everything will work out wonderfully? You start to walk through the passage. Let me show you a map of where Moab is. Let me show you a map of where Bethlehem is. Let me date it in the time of the judges, about oh, 13th century, 12, 1300 BC, something like that. Okay, we're starting to walk through. Naomi is bitter. Why? But Naomi can only see part of the way through her story. And it's not over yet. And Jesus promises it'll be okay in the end. And if it's not okay, it's not the end. All right. Then you, then you were, okay, now why does God tell us these stories? Uh, the stories are in the Bible to put flesh on his promises. And what Jesus promises now is, uh, will you trust God? He's shown himself in Jesus that he will look after us and it will be okay in the end. And God knows all of your story. You may be doing it tough. You may even feel bitter now about things. God knows all of your story day by day and he promises if we'll trust him, it will be okay. And then he gives some specific examples of the difference that belief or hope makes. You want application. Uh, you've got... Uh, the New Testament says don't be bitter, but you've got to be, you've got to be careful about how, how you apply that. I mean, I, know I heard one earnest young man say, at the end of Ruth chapter 1, say, well, the New Testament says, Ephesians 4.31, don't be bitter. So stop it. Um, <laughs> yeah, and, and when I said that to an audience, they laughed too. I said, I said, oh, mate, you're only young. Life hasn't kicked the crap out of you yet, has it? They go, yeah, that's right. And then, well, then... Hebrews 12 also says don't be bitter, but I'll tell you the big one, the application, is Romans 8, 28, 29. Everything that happens works for the good of those who love Jesus and will make you like him. Uh, um, make you uh, like him in character. Now, can you see how that... There you go. You can talk to both. You've got, why are we bitter, the Christian, the non-Christian, Naomi's bitter, why? But she can't see the end of the story. In three more chapters, she'll hold her grandson that will be the great-grandfather of King David and ultimately the Lord Jesus. And if you'll trust him, non-Christian person, if you'll trust him, it'll, it will be okay. He will look after you. Okay, that's, okay, that's um, Ruth chapter 1. Uh, what about Psalm 19? Heavens declare the glory of God. There's different kind of people in our world and different ways of seeing the world. There's the scientific and logical types. I think that's left brain. Is that right? Anyone? Okay, good, thank you. Um, left brain, and then there's the arty, intuitive types, right brain, and some of us in the middle, or perhaps neither. I don't know, okay. Um, Psalm 19, 1 to 6 talks about seeing God in creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. You can walk us through that. Now, how's that going to work? Well, for the scientific types, and see, see the opportunity then to say to those... To those to the non-Christian, that's when you start talking about the anthropic principle, the idea of that, that scientists keep seeing that it's like the universe is designed for life 
and so much so that they've come up with that nonsense uh, about the multiverse, etc. Um, if you Anthony Flew's book, There Is a God, is well worth a look. Anthony Flew was the equivalent of Richard Dawkins in the middle of the 20th century. Uh, wrote that book before he died and said he'd now become convinced that there is a God. Didn't come to a personal faith in Jesus, unfortunately. But um, that's a, so you can talk about science pointing to uh, a designer uh, and uh, etc. And then for the arty intuitive type, you say it's just the beauty of nature, the night sky, the sunrise, that kind of thing. And then some of us are a mixture of both. Uh, the Gallup World Poll, Rodney Stark's book, The, um, uh, the Triumph of Faith, 95% of people on the planet that they've interviewed uh, have some kind of spiritual beliefs. Okay, so there you go. You can engage with a non-Christian about the heavens declaring the glory of God. Yep. But what's your next step? And the Christian, the Christian will be listening as well. The next step is this. Yeah, okay, God's there. There seems to be some kind of intelligence behind the, behind the universe and it points that way, but how could you know? Well, the answer is he's personal, he's spoken to us, and that's when you get verses 7 to 11. How do you know God personally? Through his word. And what will his word do for us? Refresh us, give us wisdom and warning, etc. And then, of course, when God has spoken to us and he looks inside us and is aware of our character and the way we've treated other people, etc., etc., Forgiveness becomes all important, verse 12. And then we pray that we'd be able to live a life of confidence and joy before God. Now, see, how much of that's going to apply to the non-Christian? Pretty much all of it. How much applies to the Christian? Pretty much all of it. Yeah? Yeah? Okay. By the way, I've just picked the ones that are easy for me to do. I'm sure there's (laughs) ones that are hard. Um, Philippians 1 and 11... Sorry, one, uh, chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 11. <sighs> uh, uh, it's all about Paul's love for them and the idea of fellowship or um, uh, koinonia, partnership in the gospel. Okay, now that's a little bit harder. How do you... Okay, you've got, you got your non-Christian people in, the, in your congregation, or hopefully they're there. What are you going to say? Okay, here's, here's my suggestion. What is it that bonds people together? And I'll tell you what, since I did these notes, loneliness, as I said yesterday, loneliness is the next public health epidemic. Uh, you've just got a Google search on uh, news stories that pick up surveys of the, of the rise of loneliness uh, in, our, in our nation. And, and that will strike a chord. Okay, so you can start there, or you say, what bonds people together? Well, it's... Um, a common cause, uh, it's, it's uh, common difficulties, that kind of thing. Why is it that uh, those who fought in wars and Anzac Day you know, still get together, that, that bond that holds them together, etc.? Uh, we are wired up to want community, uh, to belong to a cause. And I, I think one of the things you see, there's a great existential vacuum in the, in the Western world, that we, we've lost meaning and purpose, why we've lost each other and community. If you want to read a brilliant book for preaching, uh, Sebastian Junger, his book Tribe. It's only a short little book. He's not a Christian. But what he's saying is we long to be part of, of a tribe and uh, often it's tragedy or war or natural disasters that bond people together. You can have a natural disaster across an area and mental well-being goes up. Why? Because it breaks down individualism and people bond together as a community. And it's not a hard book to read, but, man, it's, you know, the book that launched however many sermons. 
we've got social media, but we're lonely. We lack meaning and purpose, uh, etc. Now, what's the point? Philippians 1. Um, Paul loves these people. Why? Because they have had fellowship or partnership together. Paul's in chains. They've supported him, I think, from memory, around 10 years and he gives a picture of church and community life together. And why is that? Because Jesus has come to call us into community, uh, to, to love him and to love one another, etc. And so what does Paul pray for in verses 9 to 11? He prays for them that they have love, discernment, righteousness, and love for one another. And if you long for community and purpose, um, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, it's Jesus who will give us that. Why? Because that's what he's wired us up for. There you go. There's, that's, you're going to speak to both audiences there. And you call one to take their fellowship in the gospel seriously, and you're calling another one to actually step into that, which is great. Okay, one more, and then I'll... I'll, uh, uh, Oh, okay, can you cope with two more? Yeah, yeah, okay. Uh, Matthew 18, parable of the unmerciful servant. I love the parables because uh, the Lord Jesus has done all the heavy lifting with that. Okay, and if you... All you've got to do is kind of stumble through the parable, and it's going to be a brilliant talk. Because they're just such wonderful stories. Here we go. Christian, non-Christian. Interesting. Of all the different issues that you'll preach on, here's what I guarantee. You preach on forgiveness, you're going to get more emotional traction with people than anything else. You'll get more questions if you have question time or more people coming up and talking to you on the issue of forgiveness than any other. Why? Because everyone's been hurt in some way. Okay. Where do you start? Uh, Why is forgiveness such a loaded issue? And answer, everyone's been hurt um, in one way. Uh, what does it mean to forgive? Why is it hard to forgive? Why does forgiveness cost? What should, be, what should our motivation be? You can ask those questions, okay? Um, and then let's walk through the parable. Where do we stand at the beginning? Where do we stand before God? If the guy's dragged before the master and owes a gazillion dollars, etc. And then how can we be forgiven? Um, and then... Um, uh, the, you see, if you want to give your answers an explanation, uh, what does it mean to forgive? It's to, you guys will work it out if you want to ask questions about that. You can take them through. What does it mean to forgive? Why is it hard to forgive? Uh, why does forgiveness cost? That applies to the Christian and the non-Christian. Then walk through, um, how can we be forgiven before God? Well, it's the idea of God absorbing that pain, God forgiving us the need for the cross. And then the next second half of the parable, how does that affect the way we relate to other people? And then putting this into practice. Well, obviously, with God, the gift of forgiveness, with being ready to forgive others. Uh, applies to the Christian and the non-Christian. Let me go to um, uh, David and Goliath, and you think, okay, how are you going to preach that? Uh, I'd start with saying David and Goliath seems like a uh, children's story, and yet absolutely it's not. You're teaching people how to read the Bible here. Um, why does God give us these, these stories in the Old Testament? Well, they happened, but why are they recorded? Answer, it shows the pattern of how God saves people. Now, it's not too hard. You show them a map. Where do the Philistines live? Five coastal cities. In fact, I think Gaza still exists. Um, yeah, there's a number of them that still exist. Uh, then you've got where are the Philistines um, then if you look around the Valley of Elah where all this happened, there's a little photograph that's straight off Google. You can show this, this really happened. 
Uh, then let's walk through the story. David's concern for the name and the glory of God. Then let's talk about how do we read the Old Testament. We naturally put ourselves at the centre. Uh, so, you know, what are the giants in my life? Uh, what are the smooth stones I can kill them with? And they say, well, actually, no, that's reading it wrong. Um, we are uh, we're the average Israelites and what we need is a saviour. And then what do you show? Well, God's saviours are apparently weak. Um, in fact, God's the, the ultimate saviour is the one uh, who came and gave his life, the one who's called the son of David. And uh, you can read that, that yourself there. Uh, and where will I go in the New Testament? Probably Revelation 5, the idea of um, the Lion of Judah being the root of David and uh, being the Lamb who was slain. All right, so just, I mean, just, think, just thinking through from the Christian the non-Christian point of view, how do, I, how do I try and speak to the two audiences at once without compromising? Uh, you're not compromising how you teach the Christians. Right, I reckon we've got eight minutes. Do you want an early mark? Do you want to, uh, comments, questions? Uh, Mike? Uh, um, uh, in oh I see uh, no no say for Ruth chapter one no I'd, I'd have that that would blow out to uh, three or four of those pages because I I actually put the text into my notes now for two reasons one is it means I'm not trying to I'm mean, take the Bible up to the pulpit and I always want to have question time by the way all right do you want to know the, the secret to question time so you won't feel nervous. Yeah, this is gold too. You have question time, and if someone asks you a question and you don't know the answer, you say, well, that's a good question, I don't know. <laughs> there you go. So you don't have to be nervous anymore. I'm, I'm, actually, I'm dead serious. Uh, I don't know. I, I could find out, or what do you think? And then, yeah, so the only way you're going to get trouble in question time is if you pretend or you try and bluff and you don't know. Okay. Okay. Um, the reason I put the text in for a couple of reasons is, one, it's smoother to read from the, from the, uh, from the, one, the one sheet, but the other is I want to actually read the text when I preach. I want them looking at the text as we go through, and my mark of when I've really done my job is that they walk away, they look at that part of the Bible and they say, oh, yeah, that's pretty simple, I get it. What was he doing all week? How hard's that? <laughs> that's when it was a great talk. Uh-huh. That's that's when. Yes, sir. Yes. Oh. Yeah. Um, the epistles can be harder, uh, and I I think especially yeah uh, Romans that that kind of thing. Yep. That that is harder. I'll, I'll admit that. That's why I actually love the Gospels and the Old Testament narratives. Yeah, okay, but that's just me too. I'm a storyteller. So you give me Jacob and Esau or um, uh, the stories in Judges, they just come alive. It is harder work, you know, Romans and justification and etc. Yes, I think that's where you've got to work on uh, clarity in explaining each of those ideas and then also trying to put um, uh, apply it. So, what difference will this make in the you know justification by faith? You've got to spell out 
It's not our good works. It's not what we do. It's not, you need to make it as concrete as you can. But you're right, that, that's harder. Yep. Uh, yes, sir. You're doing 1 Corinthians 11, and there's a whole lot of issues in your congregation around some of the things that they've got attached to that. So you want to be really careful with it. Mm-hmm. And you're saying, you say, you say and, and you're concerned that you want to make sure you make the points really clearly. If I stepped off a manuscript, I'd be concerned that I'm not getting those points through really well. Would you still, you know, would you, what would you be saying? Uh, I, yes, okay. I guess there are, there are some times in some texts where you're going to be more careful, yep. yes. Um, but I still think when it comes to actually explaining those ideas, you ought to be able to understand them enough to, to not, be, not be stuck to a full script. Yep. That, I think that's what I'd say. And definitely some parts of the scriptures are, are tougher to explain than others. Yep. But I, you listen, I, I can tell, even just on audio, when guys are using a full script versus they're not. The, the sentence structure and the words they use and the way they deliver it goes flat as soon as they're using a full script. As a, oh, well, okay. There's a couple of guys can, I've known out of hundreds who can do that and I can't tell, but pretty much you can tell. So, but, you know, if you, okay, 1 Corinthians 11, preaching on that, you're allowed a bit more, some more notes, yeah. But uh, generally, uh, your explanations of points, that kind of thing, they'll be in your head, they'll be more immediate, and you'll get more traction if you're talking to them rather than reading to them. I think that's what I'd say. Yep. Yes, sir? Um, I think we're always calling, you, you preach repentance without using that particular word, I think. So you're always, we're always calling people to, to walk towards Jesus and to trust him. But what that might, what that might look like, uh, you may not have to use the particular word repentance. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. So you want to try and preach uh, your, your application in, in terms of the text that you're preaching. So I'll probably get into trouble here. Uh, I think you can, if you're preaching on the prodigal son, you may not have to major all the time, but you may not give as much time to the atonement there as to the generosity of God in welcoming us back and meeting us more than halfway. Okay? Whereas if you preach on Romans 3, it's, it's all the atonement. That's, that's what I mean. So Jesus... Uh, and, and week by week, I think you want to you focus on the... You want to work through books of the Bible. You want to focus on uh, the emphasis of that particular part of the Bible rather than having to give the whole counsel of God every week... Because if you, like if you preach on election, preach election. 
If you're preaching on the decision to follow Jesus, preach the decision to follow Jesus. Uh, if, you, if you kind of preach both each week, you, you won't get much traction. You want to, you want to push people uh, in the direction of the text. So, yeah, repentance and forgiveness every week, you may not have to do it with those particular labels, I think. All right, it's 3.29. Uh, well, you guys have really earned afternoon tea. Uh, uh, how about I'll, I'll pray... Uh, take what is useful and uh, uh, God bless you. Okay, we'll pray. Uh, our Father, we thank you for the privilege it is to be uh, teachers and preachers of your word. Please help us to understand your word, to be, to be faithful in preaching, but also to understand the people that we get to speak to, to those who are believers and those who are not yet believers. And we ask, please, that you might uh, use us to open hearts and minds. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.